So we're continuing our series, A Christian in Babylon, that we started last week, chapter one. Um, If you weren't there, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon on our YouTube channel or our podcast, uh, just because we set the foundation for this entire series. We talked about some terms, about some big ideas that are going to covered through this entire series. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to recount all of that right now because we have a big text in front of us. 49 verses. I already read 23 of them. I'm going to read the last a chunk here for us. And then my hope is that we're just going to walk through the text and notice a number of different things. Um, more often than not, when I preach, I give you like three big points. Um, we're not going to do that today. We're just going to walk through the text. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to chapter two of Daniel and you'll be able to follow along with me as I walk through the text for you. First, I'll read the rest of the text that we have not read yet. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in your bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet, iron and clay, and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be divided kingdom yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. 
a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering of incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators uh, over the province of, of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. This is God's word. So the text starts with uh, Nebuchadnezzar having these dreams at night that trouble him deeply, so much so that he goes to his wise men, his diviners, his enchanters, and he says, can you interpret this dream for me because it's really bugging me? But he includes in this request something else. He includes that not only should they interpret the dream, but they also have to tell him what the dream was before he tells them. And as you saw in the text, the, the enchanters, the wise men, they are not able to do this because they can't read the king's mind. Maybe if the king would have told them the dream, then he, they could have made up some sort of interpretation of it, but they, they can't because they don't even know what the dream is in the first place. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, well, if you can't do this, I'm going to kill all of you, all of your families, and ruin all your houses. Which includes Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the main characters of the book of Daniel. Now, they weren't there that night when Nebuchadnezzar called in those wise men, but they were part of the larger group of these wise men in the kingdom of Babylon. And so they are part of this command that Nebuchadnezzar gives to kill all the wise men. Now, as you're hearing the beginning of this text, I wonder if the same thought comes to your mind as that came to Daniel's mind when Arioch came to Daniel to tell him what the command of the king was. Why is the king being so harsh? <laughs> right? I think that's every one of our reactions. What is going on here? It, it seems impetuous. It seems unnecessary. It seems violent. What is Nebuchadnezzar doing? Well, more than likely, Nebuchadnezzar was cleaning political house. If we remember how the narrative goes historically, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is Nebuchadnezzar's father. Nebuchadnezzar had died. Nebuchadnezzar had ascended to the throne. And now this was the second year of his reign. We saw that in the first verse. As is the case with most regime changes, there are often some organizational leftovers from the previous regime whether they are advisors or cabinet members or whatever the case may be, there's often something from the previous regime that gets carried into the next regime. You know this happens in our politics as well. Nebuchadnezzar realized that these guys, these wise men who had been part of his father's reign, were more or less yes-men. We can see that kind of in the way the text is read, uh, written at the beginning of chapter 2 when he says, you guys are just trying to give me good answers until the times change. What he means by that is you're just giving me answers that make me happy until the next king comes into power. And so Nebuchadnezzar, who's a pretty sharp guy, doesn't want any of this. He's trying to find an excuse to clean political house. And so he uses this dream as an opportunity to say, well, if you guys can't interpret the dream or even tell me what the dream is, I'm going to get rid of all of you and subsequently, of course, appoint his own wise men, his own advisors, who would be on the same page with him. And he has this added benefit that if one of them actually can tell him what the dream is and interpret it, that's a guy worth keeping around, right? 
So Nebuchadnezzar is cleaning his political house at the beginning of this text. Um, What does this have to do with us? Remember last week we said that we live in a functional Babylon, that Babylon continues even into our day. And one of the common characteristics of Babylon we see right here in this action from Nebuchadnezzar. It's that in Babylon, Christians are persecuted even though they are not targeted. Daniel, Mishael, Hazariah, and Hananiah were going to die because of this decree of the king. But it wasn't really about them in the first place. They weren't there. They hadn't been asked to interpret the dream, and yet they are kind of swept up in this greater political move that Nebuchadnezzar is making. They're not being targeted. Nebuchadnezzar didn't wake up and think, I got to get rid of those Hebrews. I got to get rid of those Christians. And yet, this decree that Nebuchadnezzar makes directly targets these Christians. This is pretty common in Babylon. And it's something that I think is hard for us to grasp because we really like binary things. Either it's like this or it's like this, not somewhere in the middle. See, what we tend to do and we think about our relationship with the powers that be around us is on the one hand, either they are directly targeting us as Christians and we'll say, we are being persecuted. Those people have it out for us. How dare they? Or on the other hand, we will say something like, they're not really persecuting us at all. Let's just leave them alone. Let them do their thing. We'll do our thing. Let's keep the two things separate. But what actually happens to be the reality, both in this Babylon and in our Babylon, is that we are persecuted even though we are not very often targeted. Let me see if I can play this out with an example for you. Uh, In 2020, The government of Ontario, the government of Canada, shuts down basically all life activity because of the pandemic, which includes church life. Now, there is no reason to believe that the government of Canada, the government of Ontario, was particularly targeting Christians, right? There's no reason to believe that. However, did Christians suffer because of that decision? Absolutely they did. The decline of attendance at Christian churches, of professing Christianity, was, well, it was was a cliff, at that time. Were we being targeted? Absolutely not. Were we being persecuted? Absolutely. Not by Premier Ford or Justin Trudeau or anybody out there, but by Satan. Because Satan likes to use the normal machinations of society and culture to attack Christians. And this makes sense. If he came with a full frontal assault against Christians, Christians would be much more likely to say, hey, that's not good. Let's stop. Let's, let's put an end to that. Let's move this different direction. But if Satan can make us believe that, oh, this is just normal stuff. This is just how it goes. Well, then we don't take notice. We just let it happen. We say, that's not a big deal. That's their problem. This is what was happening. Nebuchadnezzar makes a political move. And the result that Satan wants to happen is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are killed. And the same is true for us. We might look at the culture around us and say, you know, those things that are happening, they don't really affect us. They're probably not ultimately about us. But Satan likes to use things like that to attack us. Many of you know that uh, just in January, Bill C-4 was passed. If you know Bill C-4, it's a bill that is about conversion therapy. A typical old-school conversion therapy was like if someone had maybe a sexually deviant preference, they would use something violent like shock therapy to get them to change back to being either straight or not transgender or whatever the thing may be. And so the government of Canada passed a law that said that that's illegal. 
Now, we think to ourselves, well, that seems like a pretty good thing, right? And it is. We think that things like shock therapy, violent treatment of people in order to get them to change their behavior are not good things. But inherent in the law is the teaching that Christians cannot encourage people who are struggling with their gender identity or their sexuality to pursue a godly sexuality or gender identity. To make this real for you, if I'm talking to somebody who's struggling with their sexual identity and I were to tell them that actually what God wants for you is to be the gender that you were born and to be attracted to the opposite sex, I can go to jail for that in this country. It's not about us. They're not targeting us. But it's an opportunity for Satan to work against us. And if we're not willing to notice these things, we are going to be swept up by them. And I could give you a hundred more examples. But we have to have our eyes open to these things. So Arioch gets this command from Nebuchadnezzar, and he goes out and he starts trying to find the wise men to kill them. And he gets to Daniel's door, knocks on it. Daniel answers the door. Maybe it's the middle of the night. Daniel's got messy hair or something. He's groggy, rubbing his eyes. And Arioch says, "Um, hey, this is awkward, but I got to kill you. It's not about me or I just, sorry. Daniel's reaction to this, though, is is really interesting. The text tells us that uh, when Daniel heard this, he spoke with wisdom and tact. You can imagine, given the exact same scenario, how you might react, probably not with wisdom and tact, right? Uh, You might run, or you might hide, or you might cry, or you might try to make your case as to why this is unfair. You might try to do any number of things, but replying calmly with wisdom and tact, probably not high on your list. But for Daniel, it was. He gives this very calm question. He just asks, why? What is going on that that needs to be what happens? I think there's something for us to learn here too. What Babylon wants us to do is to panic about everything. But Christians don't. Christians are able to engage with the world with wisdom intact. Because we realize that, that there's something beyond this life. That this life and what's happening around us is not all that matters. That we have a status given to us by God and an eternity that's guaranteed by him that's not going to perish, spoil, or fade. But you know what this looks like, right? You know the articles that use incendiary language, things like stunning, shocking, exposed, undeniable. You read these articles and they, they give you this sense that you should really be worried about this. You should panic about this. This is a big deal. You know why they do that? Because it works. That's why they do it. A study done by the University of Berlin, pretty recent study, uh, showed that uh, you are likely to believe a headline without reading the article, even if you don't trust the source of that article. It uses emotional language. So pick your least favorite news outlet. Just think of it, don't say it out loud. They produce an article And you don't read it, you just read the headline. If the headline has emotional language like this, you are more likely to believe it. You don't even trust the source, and you're more likely to believe it because that's how emotional language works. What Babylon wants us to do is to panic, to worry about everything going on around us. But that's not what Daniel does. He asks a question. Why? But he takes the time to slow down and say, hold on. You seem to think I should be really panicked about this, but why? 
Maybe as we think about how we interact with the things around us that are constantly telling us to worry and be concerned about any number of things, we should ask the same question, or maybe in a different form, why should I care? Why does this matter to me? What does this change about my life tomorrow? If you think about it very often, these things that we're told to care about, to worry about, to panic about, they don't actually affect our day-to-day life. If you would have never read the article, would it have changed your life? You would live the exact same way you did yesterday and you will tomorrow. Another question we could ask ourselves when, when Babylon is telling us to panic is who benefits? Right, if I believe whatever this headline or this article tells me to believe, who benefits? Is it the, the news company who's trying to make money off me with advertisements because I clicked on something that had emotional language? Is it some sort of power who's trying to get me to believe a certain narrative about something that's happening? Who benefits? I have to ask myself this question. Because what Babylon wants me to do is live in constant fear, where God would have me live in constant trust. See, Daniel had no fear because Daniel knew that he was immortal. Daniel knew that regardless of whether he would die that night or die next day or die 10 years from then, he was going to live forever with God. And so he had nothing to worry about. This life was already being taken care of by the God that he trusted. And so why worry about these things? Maybe to make it really uh, real for you, how many of you like when people micromanage you? That's what I thought. Think about what we do as Christians. We say to God, God, I trust you with my eternity and my life, and I believe that you are making all things work out for the good of those who love you. And then what do we do? Look over his shoulder while he manages our life. We micromanage him. Is God really going to do what's best for me? I don't really like the way God did that. Can you, can you do it a little bit differently? You're really annoying. Stop it. I mean that in love. See, Daniel didn't fear. And so he could interact with this with a calmness, with a slowness, with a ruthlessly eliminating hurry attitude. The things that the world tells me to worry about, I don't need to worry about those things. So much so that, that Daniel then says to Arioch, hey, I'll interpret the dream. Now, does Daniel know what the dream is or its interpretation yet? No, he has no idea, right? He's just saying, I'll do it. Why? Well, again, because he believes he's immortal, but he also believes that his life is a life that is supposed to give glory to God. And because he knows that in a sense he's untouchable, he can do wildly crazy, bold things for Jesus. He can say, I don't even know the interpretation of this dream, but I trust that my God is able to do that, so why not give it a try? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? I die and go to be with God forever? That's awesome. (laughs) Like, that's a good thing. So why can't I live boldly for him today? Well, there's something for us in that as well. We tend to be conservative in the way that we live our lives as Christians. We try our best to be as Christian as possible without ever letting anybody know that we're really that Christian. But that's not what Daniel does. Daniel steps out in faith because he knows who God is and what God is capable of. And none of us will probably have the opportunity to interpret a dream anytime soon, but but there are opportunities in your life. There are places where God has given you the chance to step out in your Christian faith, to trust that he's going to protect you, that he's going to empower you, that he's going to support you, and whatever that thing is that you don't think you really can do in this culture, he'll be there. 
So Daniel then says, I'm going to interpret this dream. He sends a message to Nebuchadnezzar that I'm going to interpret this dream. And then he goes back to his home with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he prays with them about this, which should, of course, be the first reaction that any Christian has when they're going through something difficult. They are praying, and they're not just praying by themselves. They're praying with others. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they pray with Daniel, not because they're going to actually have to do anything. I mean, Daniel's the one who's going to go in and interpret this dream, but but they know that Daniel's success or failure in this has an impact on them. And so they pray with him. There's something in that for us as well. First of all, that we ought to pray. Like as you start to become more and more aware of how evil Babylon is around us, it can be overwhelming. And so you can start to feel like, what on earth can I, little old me, do in this world of evil and injustice? The answer is pray. There's 150 prayers that God gave you for situations just like this. You ought to pray. And you ought to pray with one another. Because it turns out the body of Christ is a unified thing. We aren't just our own little Christians on our own little islands. We are a body that's gathered together that takes Jesus' body and blood, which unites us together. And so we pray with one another in Christian community closely. In fact, so close that I'm I'm willing to make a statement like this. If you're not close enough to be regularly sinned against, you're not in Christian community. Like, that's how close we need to be. So close that we can be regularly sinned against by one another. And here's why I make that statement. Because the Bible talks about the primary action of Christian community as forgiving forgiving one another and bearing with one another. I can keep you at a distance A nice, safe distance where you really can't mess with my life. I can wave to you on Sunday, smile and shake your hand, and move on with the rest of my life and not have to deal with any of your messiness and have any of of my messiness ooze out on you. Or I can be a Christian. I can live in Christian community. You cannot do Christianity by yourself. That is a modern Western assumption that is foreign to the Bible. Christianity is lived out in community. It necessarily must be. So they pray the whole night, and God gives them the interpretation of the dream. He gives them this interpretation that we're going to study in a little bit, but Daniel's immediate reaction to all of this is to praise God, right? You get this short little psalm at the end of the first part of the text that we read, where he praises God for being the one who raises up kings and tears down kings and gives wisdom and creates all things and supports all things. It's a beautiful psalm, um, but I'll be honest with you, it's one of those things in the Bible, and maybe you run up against them, where you sort of just start reading it and then you start skimming <laughs> as you go down. It's like those alms that you find sometimes where they're like, praise God, praise him in his sanctuary, praise him all you living creatures, praise him you trees and you animals and you ants and you marsupials and like all these different things, praise him. And you start thinking to yourself, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. We can just go on to the next psalm, right? It's kind of like that, right? It's, it's almost white noise, in a sense, as we read it. But there's something really beautiful in it, and I think uh, the Holy Spirit has finally turned me on to what he's trying to do here. He's trying to help us orient our heart toward Jesus. Like, to to press into us by, by merciless repetition that this is about Jesus, and it's not about me. Daniel could have taken this interpretation of the dream. He could have taken it to the king. He could have interpreted it. And all the good stuff that happened to him could have happened. He wouldn't have had to say, I got this from the God of heaven. He could have just taken credit for himself. But he recognized this was about Jesus. This was God's gift to him. How quickly we fall into that temptation, don't we? To first of all, think that all the things in our life depend on us. 
to think that I need to pull it off, I need to make enough money, I need to be successful, I need to make people like me, I need to find a way for myself in this world. Or on the other hand, when things that are good, things that I want to happen, happen, we very quickly take credit for those things rather than give credit to God, right? I worked hard for this, I put in the hours, I got the education, I'm a good person. It's all about Jesus. And so is our life together. It's all about Jesus. And we need to remember that in Babylon. Let me give you some really practical thoughts on this. Hopefully, in the next couple of years, Cross of Life will be moving into our own space. We don't have a plan for that yet exactly, but we're working on it. We pray by God's grace that he would give us our own building that we can call our home, a building that we can pass on to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren as they continue to worship God here in Mississauga. How ought we to decorate that building? Do we decorate it with stuff that we like, stuff that's trendy? Or do we think about a longer trajectory? Do we think about something that's bigger than us? Do we think about what God wants rather than what we want? Or as we think about how we live our lives and how we bless our neighbors? Do we think about things that make blessings happen right now? or setting ourselves up for a trajectory of blessing our community for decades to come? Could we possibly think about creating a congregation that maybe isn't super comfortable for us right now, but is set up to grow to be something that is beautiful and functional and blesses other people in 50 or 100 years from now? It's so easy for us to worry about our lives, what we want control over, rather than saying this is all about Jesus. Or how about what we're actually doing right now? Let's forget the future for a moment. Are we here for Jesus? It's so easy in North American culture to be part of a church for any reason other than Jesus. You think the music is pretty good. You think the preaching is pretty good. The church is convenient for you. It's kind of in your neighborhood. They don't ask too much of me. They don't tell me to tithe or anything crazy like that. Um, Whatever the thing might be, any good reason that you can find to be in a church besides Jesus, we've got many of them. But that's not Christianity. Christianity. It's all about Jesus. You're here for Jesus. You're not here because your best friend is here or you like the way this church functions. You're here for Jesus. Can I test you on that? What if the music were to completely shift next week? Would you keep coming here? What if the next pastor who serves Cross of Life is completely different from me? Would you keep coming here? What if we moved our location to another part of the city? Would you keep attending Cross of Life? What if the the person that you like most in this church stopped going here? Would you keep going here? I mean, you can list any number of things, but is it about Jesus for you or is it about something else? For Daniel, it was all about Jesus. And in fact, I found this to be the case as as we play out our life together as a church. Um, I've yet to meet the person in any of the ministries that I've served in my time who's left a church because of something about Jesus. They leave because there's drama with this person, they don't like this thing that changed, whatever the thing is, it's not about Jesus. It was never about Jesus for them. And I don't mean that to pick on all these people who maybe have left our church or left any other church that I've been part of. It's for us, I'm talking to you, I'm not talking about them. Are you here for Jesus? Or are you here for something else? Daniel was there for Jesus. He recognized that God had done this for him. 
gave him this ability to interpret the dream. And so he goes into Nebuchadnezzar and he interprets the dream, and you heard exactly what he described. Uh, A huge statue with a head of gold, with silver shoulder and arms, with a bronze torso, iron legs, and iron and clay feet. And uh, we have the benefit now of 2,600 years of history that have happened since this vision. We actually get to see what Daniel saw in even more clarity than he saw it. Uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, this is the story of four nations. Four nations are represented by the four different types of metal. Yours is the top, he says. That golden head is you, Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Babylon. After you, there's going to come another kingdom, though, represented by these shoulders of silver. This is going to be a kingdom that is inferior to yours. Now, he doesn't tell him who that kingdom is going to be, but from the benefit of looking back at history, we find out that he meant the Medo-Persian Empire, or what is often just called the Persian Empire. After that comes this torso of bronze. He says this nation is going to come after the nation of silver. This third nation, we find out, is Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And then finally, he says, there are these iron legs, and they are a fourth nation who are going to smash everything. We find out this is the Romans. Then he includes this last detail about these feet. These feet are made of clay and iron mixed together, which iron and clay don't mix, just like oil and water don't mix. So they are sort of patchy, right? He says, this is going to be the characteristic of this nation, Rome, that it is going to be divided, that there are going to be people from all over, but they are never going to be truly unified because, well, as you know from history, Rome was a very multicultural empire that was never able to really truly unite itself because of the many different people groups that existed in it. This is true of history in general. If you can't get your culture all on the same page about cultural values, your nation inevitably falls. In this sense, diversity is not strength. Now, You can explain that correctly, but that's what he's trying to get at. But then he says something else is going to happen. There's going to be a rock. This rock, not cut by human hands, is going to be uh, hurled at the statue. It's going to hit these feet, and the whole thing is going to crumble, and that rock is going to become a great mountain. It is going to fill the whole earth. Now, it's easy for us to, from a Christian worldview, see what's happening here, right? There are empires followed by empires, Until finally, a rock, which is the same word that the rest of the Bible uses to describe Jesus, think Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That rock comes and strikes those nations and builds a new kingdom that fills the entire earth, that never gets passed on to another, but continues on until all nations pass away. That's the very basic interpretation of the dream. He's telling them what's going to happen. There's history, and then... Jesus is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. But I think there are some really practical applications for us to take from this vision as well. It's easy to just write it off and say, oh, that's really interesting that he knew the history before it was going to happen. Um, but there's, there's some stuff that we really can pull from this. And I, I want to just put that into three points here. The foreknowledge of God, the power of God, and the growth of God's kingdom. So first of all, uh, the foreknowledge of God. Um, God is looking at about 600 years of history in this vision, right? We're in Babylon. It's about 603 BC or so. Jesus, of course, is born somewhere around the year zero. 600 years of history that Jesus has in mind. And yet how quick it is for us to not think even past the end of our nose. To see only our life is what matters. 
to not see a greater trajectory of what God is capable of doing. God has a 600-year vision, or probably well, more, but for the sake of the rhetoric of the sermon, a 600-year vision of our life. Our congregation has a 10-year vision, and it's hard enough to keep a 10-year vision on track. Um, God has a 600-year-plus vision. He's thinking centuries beyond where we are right now. And he is working out things for the sake of blessing his church in that. Now, if you think of a 10-year vision versus a 600-year vision, there are different ways to handle that, right? A 10-year vision allows you to say, well, what kind of works right now, that's what we can do. But a 600-year vision sees something far bigger. What if we would think the same way as God? If we would realize that we are just a moment in a greater mountain that God is growing, that this isn't really about us and our preferences and our wants, but about God and what God is doing on a grand scale beyond what we can possibly fathom. You know, we are so quick as individualistic and frankly catered to Western people think that everything is about us and what we want. But it's not, it's about Jesus and what Jesus is doing. Another part of this I think that's important for us to recognize too is that God sees multiple nations all in succession. I think it's really easy for us to consider that Western civilization as we know it is really never going to end. We kind of just think it's going to keep going and keep going and keep going. But if history is any indicator, it will crumble someday. I don't know when, I'm not a prophet, but it will. Are we ready for that? Or are we investing in the things of this world, of this culture, of this country, of this city, more than we are investing in the things that go on for eternity? Are we willing to acknowledge the inherent flaws in our culture? Look, I'm a Canadian just as much as you. I love this country. And that means it's hard to notice when our country has deep flaws. Are we willing to acknowledge those things and say that our country is wicked? And not to just point at the United States and say, well, we're not as wicked as they are. Because in many cases, we're more wicked. Do you know what's going to happen in March? Medical assistance in dying is going to expand to the point where we will be allowing people who just have mental illness to be euthanized in this country. And it will be suggested to them as a possible medical treatment. Our country wants to kill its citizens, so much so that the University of British Columbia's citizenship and equity director, Tim Staten, said that this change in the law and medical assistance in dying is reminiscent of what the Nazis did in 1930 to the mentally disabled around them. I'm not saying we're the Nazis, but we ought to be aware of this and be willing to say, like, I might love the maple leaf as much as you guys do, but I'm loyal to something far bigger than it. I'm loyal to the cross of Jesus. Let's be loyal to something that's going to pass beyond this life or this nation or this culture. Then let's see how God is going to do it. The power of God. Um, we know that the rock that comes in and strikes the, the statue is Jesus, right? But what's really interesting about this rock is that it is the least valuable of all the substances in the statue, right? There's gold and silver and bronze, iron. These things are all more valuable than this little rock. And yet, you know, the rock is what strikes the statue, completely knocks them all down and grows into this huge mountain. Now, we can think of the words that the Bible gives us about Jesus from Philippians, 
right? That though he was in very nature God, he took on the form of a servant being made in human likeness, making himself obedient to death, even death on a cross. That he was great and yet he became less for us. He was rich, yet out of his riches he became poor so that in our poverty we might become rich. He had nothing about him that attracted us to him. He was an ordinary looking man and yet you know exactly what Jesus did. All of that is true and all of that is in this text. But there's something even greater to see. That God works through the ordinary and the ugly and the things that don't seem all that great to accomplish his purpose. God worked through a man that anyone else could have passed by, not even noticed, to save the entire world from its sins. In the same way, God continues to work through ordinary things in your life. We expect, I think, that God is going to work in miraculous and powerful ways, but he's not. He's going to work through the ordinary things of life. A little bit of water sprinkled on a head, a piece of bread and a drink of wine that give you immortality. Christian community with messy, broken, sinful people suffering like Jesus suffered. All of these things that are the ordinary, ugly things of life, God chooses to work through those things. Because when God came, he chose to die on a cross in order to do the most good. Life comes through death, brothers and sisters. And if we want to be Christians, biblical Christians, then we acknowledge that. These ordinary things, gathering together, praying together, sacrament together, forgiving one another, bearing with one another, those are the things that grow the kingdom. And since we're talking about it, the growth of God's kingdom. I touched on this already, but let's be willing to say that this is a bigger trajectory than us. That this mountain that's going to fill the whole world is going to go beyond us. And that we ought to think, first of all, what does that mean for our children, our grandchildren? How can we set them up for spiritual growth and life when we're gone? And can we be willing to say that I might not be a hero, I might not be remembered, but what I do is going to bless people for generations to come? Whether we do that through teaching, through mentoring, through generosity, through our time, through our efforts, whatever it is, are we thinking with a bigger picture? but in this also is the comfort. If you look around at the world and you think that is messed up, that this world that we live in is sick, it's not going to be here forever. A kingdom that's far greater, is far better, is growing. It's growing right here through ordinary things. It's growing in a million other churches this morning where Jesus is being preached. It's growing and it's going to last forever. And you're part of it. So lean into it, brothers and sisters. And to maybe make this personal for you, let me give you one last application of this text. It's interesting to me that the the thing that Nebuchadnezzar sees is a statue of a human. Maybe you never thought about it. Why does he see a statue of a human? Um, It's not explicit in the text, but it is implicit in the text because the very next verse, the first verse of chapter three, says that Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, six cubits wide, and set it up in Babylon. Most commentators will say this was a statue of himself. That, That Nebuchadnezzar had always had in mind that he was going to make a statue of himself, to honor himself. And you know how this is when you have dreams. Your dreams are kind of like weirdly connected to the things that you've been thinking about or seeing during the day. God used what Nebuchadnezzar was already thinking about to give Nebuchadnezzar a very clear message. Who you think you're going to be, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to crumble. If you put your value into being the most awesome king of the most awesome kingdom, it's all going to crumble. 
Now, there's some debate about whether Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses and believed that, and we'll talk about that when we get there later in Daniel. But my question is, do you believe that? Because every one of us has an image of ourselves. We're probably not building a statue of it, but we have it in our minds. It's a skinnier, smarter, more successful, more married, richer version of ourselves that we want to be. Can God smash that image? Can God make you into something far better, far more eternal? Be willing to let that image be smashed and be willing to lean into who Jesus is going to use you to be, Babylon. C.S. Lewis said this really well, um, and I want to quote him. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house around in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up the towers, making courtyards. You thought yourself to be a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. Do you want your life to be a cute little cottage or a palace fit for the real king of kings? Let him come and mess with your life. And you'll find that what comes out the other side is far more beautiful, far more glorious, far more worshipful of the true God and the kingdom that he's making come. Main point to walk away with today, God is overall. God is the one who raises kings and deposes kings. God is the one who gives us the ability to be brave in situations where we would normally be fearful. God is the one who saves our souls from hell. So trust him. Let's pray. God, we are confronted by the evil of our culture, the evil of our own hearts. And so we come to you in repentance for ourselves and our neighbors, that you would look on our nation with mercy, that you would allow us to live in peace and security, but also that if there is sin among us, that you would rid us of it because it is far more dangerous you ask, we ask that you would grow a kingdom among us with your word, with your sacrament, with the mutual encouragement and forgiveness of brothers and sisters in Christ, the patient endurance of the saints. We ask that you would give us trust in you over all things. Trust with our life, our money, our future, our children, our society. And use all those things to bring you glory. In your name we ask it. Amen.